Hello there, this is Gary Gerani, film historian, screenwriter, and your host for this better-than-average episode of Kolchak the Night Stalker, which was originally uh, telecast on November 20th, uh, 1974, and I was there with my trusty reel-to-reel videotape recorder, a Sony. This was years before beta and VHS. But I uh, wanted to record these episodes because they were quite interesting, and I was thinking of including uh, Kolchak in the main lineup of Fantastic Television, which was a book I was writing or just starting to write at that time. By the way, I'd like to draw your attention right now to the uh, opening titles here, which were created and directed by Jack Cole, a name you'll see in the end credits every week. And I was uh, fortunate enough to interview Jack Cole just a couple of years ago. Uh, for a documentary that I was making, and we spoke about uh, his uh, work on The Night Stalker, and we will be getting into that a little further down with this commentary. Anyway, our episode begins in typical fashion with uh, Carl Kolchak kind of summing things up. The solitary reporter uh, who is, in a way, has no life other than what he does in this series, pretty much, uh, as far as we can tell, and that's by design. Uh, again, some wonderful point-of-view shots. One of the strengths of Kolchak, the Night Stalker, of course, was the wonderful cinematography, uh, and I have to say, to some degree, the, unhung, the unsung hero of Kolchak might be cinematographer Ronald W. Brown, who did all the work on the show and was really, I mean, look at this right here. I mean, what a wonderful way to open up a shot. Uh, we don't know what we're looking at, it's hazy, and then we realize as we, the camera pulls away we were shooting through some flowers or whatever to give you a sense of this rich woman's home. Uh, and that is the whole gimmick here, as Kolchak sets us up. The rich are being imperiled in this story. The, the rich who are usually very uh, well-protected, well-guarded, and uh, all of those protections are not going to make uh, a bit of difference in the course of this story. We are looking at, actually, an actress named Lois January, who was playing the first victim of our story. And interestingly enough, she <laughs> began her movie career back in the 30s. Uh, she's one of the devil worshippers in The Black Cat, the classic Boris Karloff uh, Edgar Ulmer movie. Uh, and she's also, just to show you her range, still in the fantasy genre, uh, she's the manicurist in The Wizard of Oz. So, you know, she pops up here and there in uh, some important movies. By the way, we're, we're now seeing the first attack, and the method of this attack is something that we're going to be seeing repeated uh, in the later killings, and it's very significant. We see an animal, we see a victim mesmerized, and then we see that animal transform into human form, uh, in this case what appears to be a rather large-sized Native American, played by the actor Richard Keel, who we will be... Uh, discussing at length during the course of this commentary. As a matter of fact, I also managed to interview Richard Keel a few years ago, and uh, horror wasn't his strong suit, interestingly enough, so this particular role was not one of his favorites. We'll get into that a little, little further down the line. Um, second victim here is, uh, uh, this is Lucy LaPont Addison, played by Barbara Morrison. And another, you know, veteran actress. Uh, we've seen her in One Step Beyond, Twilight Zone. She played Hattie Hatfield in the uh, 
Batman episode that contaminated Cal. Kolchak's narration sets her up as a pretty formidable character, which is she sees this dog or coyote or whatever it is and instantly reaches for a weapon. <laughs> so, so this lady wasn't even frightened that much. She was ready to fight back. Uh, but again, we see this entire uh, process going on where the person is hypnotized and gives up a treasure. I forgot to mention, first time around, yeah, it, it was the treasure that the Indian was after. Look at this wonderful up-angle shot. And, of course, Richard Keel's entire history on film very often involved up-angles to accentuate his tremendous height. Uh, here we have our regular opening with some fantastic shots. And all of these uh, establishing shots uh, from Chicago were, were shot when McGavin and the camera crew had gone out uh, to do all this kind of shooting initially, and these, these were shots that you'll see throughout the show, and they really, really are a very good idea because it makes a difference. You kind of feel that you're there. You know the show was filmed on the Universal lot for the most part. They went out to a few locations, but it's mostly a, a studio show. So all of these shots were invaluable in establishing where we were. And it's to the credit of the show that they that they did that, and uh, we always get we always get that. We're noticing our credits here. There are some familiar ones. Uh, our writers here also did Mr. Ring and the Sentry, and our director uh, also did the Zombie. Oh, I love this particular shot with the train. Uh, it's also the classic idea of you know they're so low rent. Every time a train passes by, things kind of rattle. I should also mention something, you know, we, we've seen a couple of the attacks and the music, uh, which is by Jerry Fielding, uh, who kind of jumped in. Gil Malay sort of established the flavor uh, and tone of the, uh, the series with his music, uh, and then uh, Jerry Fielding kind of came in and did his thing, and Fielding was a great composer as well. I mean, oh my goodness, he did The Wild Bunch, Straw Dogs, The Outlaw Josie Wales, Escape from Alcatraz. Bad News Bears, I mean, he was very, very versatile. And he caught the vibe very well. Uh, he understood that it's sort of a funky show with funky music that can range from being kind of funny and surprising and then dark, all mixed in with a kind of reporter-on-the-job kind of busy music that we associate with the genre. Of course, here we see our regular cast of characters, sort of the Kolchak family, uh, and it's quite a wonderful family. I mean, you know, we've got uh, Ruth McDevitt as Emily Cowles and Jack Bridges as Ron Updike. And, of course, yeah, I'm sure many of the other commentators are going to mention this. Yeah, this little family is a classic unit. You have the kind of mischievous bad boy, boy Kolchak. You've got the good little boy, uh, Ron Updike. You've got the kindly grandmother force. And then you have <laughs> Vincenzo, who is the long-suffering father figure, I suppose, to, uh, to Carl Kolchak. And all of these actors are, are wonderful. I'm not going to run through a list of their credits. Let's just say that they've done a ton of great work. But I do want to talk about Simon Oakland for a second because he is truly a remarkable performer. And, you know, for me, I think about his work in the early 60s. I, I think about Psycho. I think about he's, he plays the racist cop in West Side Story. Yeah, he's had a tremendous career. And in Psycho, he gets to give this amazing speech at the end, which kind of amounts to a soliloquy. And to me, and to a lot of other film buffs, it's, it's almost like the equivalent of uh, 
Marlon Brando in On the Waterfront in the famous taxi scene because Oakland's delivery is so incredible. I mean, to this day, consciously or unconsciously, we wind up, at least I wind up, using some of his phrases. I don't know how many times I've said, uh-uh, not exactly. Uh, his final soliloquy in Psycho is really wonderful. Anyway, as our plot is moving along here, we'll, we'll notice uh, <laughs> rather humorously that Carl parks his car uh, <laughs> right next to the cop cars and in a sense is impeding the, the work of the police as the camera swings back and shows us this, but that's classic Carl Koshak, folks. Uh, oh, okay, and here we, uh, here we have our adversary of the week, at least in terms of uh, uh, author uh, authority figure, police kind of adversary. Obviously, it's the monster of the week who is the real adversary for Carl Koshak. But he's always dealing with, you know, tough cops and police chiefs and authority figures who just think he's crazy. That's all part of the whole formula of the show. We have a, an interesting sequence here. Again, look at fantastic handheld photography. Uh, and one could say that the handheld photography style of the show is clearly influenced by news reporting, what you see on the news. It's always handheld photography. You want to get that sense of it. But uh, the cinematographer continues that look in all kinds of shots, uh, even ones that aren't like this, that suggest action and chasing and whatever. He, uh, you know, he kind of does that uh, in general, and the show is very much alive visually. Of course, I'm pointing out in the second shot of the dog, you'll see the dog move a little uh, at the very end. I think its head moves, yeah, its ear moves, but hey, okay. This <laughs> is only after looking at this for quite some time. By the way, uh, our uh, uh, police captain this week, Captain Joe Baker, is played by uh, Ramon Beery, who is uh, a, a, a very popular character. We have our big reveal here as the cops actually see the giant Indian. It's interesting, uh, he puts his hand over his eyes as they're shooting. You would think, oh, he's putting his hands over his ears, but uh, that's what it should have been. But actually, underneath it all, Carl's been taking pictures, and... Uh, it's pretty much established that his eyes are his key power source and anything that affects him. So in that shot, you're, you tend to think it's the sounds, but it's actually this other thing. Uh, a very effective moment right here. Uh, by the way, uh, uh, Ramon Beery, I just mentioned, he was a wonderful heavy set character actor. Uh, he also played Captain Webster in Legacy of Terror as a similar character, different name. Uh, and he was a, you know, perennial guest star and started on the stage and eventually had his own show, Joe's World, in 1979. And uh, he uh, passed away in 2001 at age 71. Uh, okay, so we're coming toward the end of Act 1 here, and we have had this uh, amazing attack, a series of attacks, uh, by this curious character who appears to be, just visually, a Native American Indian. And I love this final shot. Taken right up there, you'll notice the jewel to the left. Uh, this shape-shifting Native American has achieved his goal once again. Very effective way to end the first section. By the way, this, uh, <laughs> this shot we're looking at right now, which will be repeated later in the episode, is not uh, a shot of Chicago. It's actually uh, <laughs> a night shot of uh, Boston, Massachusetts. And you can see the... Um, Prudential Tower, the John Hancock Tower, and even the famous uh, Sitco sign in Kenmore Square. Now, this was mentioned uh, uh, on Wikipedia or IMDb, and seems to be true from what I can tell.
Again, look at that great shot. Uh, it was handheld, it was exciting. The, the car zooms right into the front of the frame. It was almost a Douglas Sirk shot. Really, really good. And in very good health, you've got Darren McGavin just kind of jumping up and running out of the car. By the way, uh, <laughs> a little fact of logic here that we should mention. Uh, the events of the story are supposed to be happening in November. Well, uh, November in Chicago is uh, bound to be pretty cold. And uh, certainly the way these characters are dressed and, and driving around in a convertible really doesn't make much sense. But hey, this is make-believe. It's a TV show, so, so we go with it. Uh, okay, here we have our obligatory news conference sequence. Again, I call your attention to how each shot is carefully designed and set up. Uh, the scene began with a moving camera uh, as he was beginning uh, the speech, and each shot has been a little different, uh, and there's a sense of life and vitality. Even when you have a bunch of people just sitting there writing notes, the style of, of filmmaking always kind of grabs you. And that was one of the things that... that uh, really kind of turned me on to the show when I first began to watch it. I'm saying, wow, for a weekly series, they realize they have to be more cinematically alive and astute than the average show would be. And that takes time, work, designing, a lot of effort. Uh, I mean, and the fact that they were able to pull this off every week, I got to say, very, very impressive. And it was extremely disheartening, I guess, when the show was not doing well in the ratings, given all the hard work that everybody was, was doing here. Uh, and that's always a shame. You know, people work very, very hard on a show, uh, particularly a show that requires as much detail as this one does, and McGavin really practically killed himself doing the show, and uh, finally things got to a point toward the end where with the low ratings and, and with a lot of frustration on the set, uh, he finally said, hey, I've had enough of this and worked out a deal with Universe saying, all right, we don't have to do the last two episodes. So the series, which was supposed to run 22 episodes, really only runs the 20 episodes, which is kind of a shame. Uh, too bad we didn't have those last two. Uh, but again, I guess Mr. McGavin was just kind of losing it. Here we have um, reporter Cole, Cole, uh, Carl Kolchak doing what a good reporter does, which is sort of lying and playing tricks and doing whatever he has to do to get at the information. Um, the ballistics uh, uh, report here, I believe that's Dennis McCarthy on the other end, and uh, that's Bob Golden walking in as the Detective Tackwood. And, of course, uh, yeah, <laughs> Carl has found out. I remember this uh, particular bit of business. Jimmy Stewart did it in Cole Northside 777 years earlier. Works just as well here. Now, some people have pointed out that in, in many ways uh, uh, our police adversary of the week uh, kind of uh, has a Vincenzo-like quality about him. Yeah, he's another kind of big guy, uh, very, very similar. Uh, but, you know, it, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, Carl always seems to be caught between dealing with adversaries who just don't want to hear the truth and finding offbeat, eccentric characters who can help him in his investigation, such as the person we're looking at right now. And this character is Albert uh, Delgado, who's an ex-con turned barber. 
And uh, he's played by Marvin Kaplan, who a lot of people of my generation might recognize as Choo Choo from the Top Cat TV series. Uh, he's a very funny New York comedian, uh, discovered by Katherine Hepburn. And she put him in Adam's Rib in 1949. And he's been a wonderful character actor and voice actor ever since. Uh, Mad Mad World, The Great Race, etc. Uh, he passed away in 2016. Oh, and he also, I should mention, played Henry for eight years on, on Alice. So he, he became someone that the public was sort of aware of. Well, maybe his voice, uh, you know, if nothing else, uh, is kind of unforgettable. Uh, but here, it's, this is just typical of the kind of person that uh, Kolchak will connect with. You'll see a couple more in this episode before the, it's finished. And uh, in a weird way, it's sort of like Kolchak is an eccentric, and many of the people that he encounters uh, are eccentric as well. This kept a uh, level of humor uh, to the proceedings. It was offbeat, slightly dark humor, although the series played it up a little bit more, and that in itself led to difficulties uh, to the point where uh, Darren McGavin, who was promised uh, that he would be the producer of the show, but this was just uh, a promise. It really was not, in fact, the truth. But he uh, kind of behaved like he was the producer in a way I, I really don't blame him. If Universal said, yeah, you can produce the show, and they still weren't officially forthcoming, well, hell, I'm going to produce the show and do it my way. They, they said I was the producer, right? But this did lead to tremendous problems. Uh, McGavin's concept of the show ultimately was a little different than, than Universal's. Uh, I suppose we should say that, uh, you know, Darren McGavin certainly knew his character and the potential of his character more than any studio uh, executive. Uh, but it did it did lead lead to problems. Uh, of course, everybody wanted Kolchak to be humorous and to be an eccentric, funny character. It's just the balance of horror and humor. And there have been, you know, it's been mentioned that a lot of times that there are two different camps here. Uh, that there are some who love the original Night Stalker movie and sort of are fond of the second telefilm, but then when the concept went to a weekly series. Uh, the very nature of that seemed to dissipate the horror or reduce the experience into something of a formulaic joke to some degree. And uh, I, I, I understand the feelings of people like Stephen King, who very much liked the original feature but really despised the series, feeling it was ludicrous. Uh, I could see that point of view, but I don't agree with that. Um, I, I think... Shows can operate on in many, many different ways. Things don't have to be literal. Uh, you can have a figurative experience. You could have a symbolic experience, I, I, which is to me what Kolchak is. It's a metaphor. This was the Watergate era. Uh, and uh, it was a clever way to do a sort of fantasy that repeats that message in a roundabout way every week. I mean, what I tell people is, listen, if you, you insist on being... Uh, super realistic about this, uh, try this one on. How about after the events of the first uh, telefilm, uh, Carl Kolchak had a breakdown, and he's in a straitjacket somewhere, and he's having hallucinations. He's reliving that original Las Vegas experience where he encountered an actual monster. He's reliving that in his mind over and over and over again, 
And that's what we're experiencing here, where we somehow we, we, uh, <laughs> we're seeing his inner thoughts acted out and portrayed. So if you need to, you can look at it that way. Uh, and if you are able to make the leap and just say, hey, enjoy the pleasures of what we're getting. We're still getting all those same uh, thwarting authority, uh, finding the truth. Um, all the entertainment value that comes from watching Darren McGavin doing this kind of thing. Uh, also, I want to mention, there's a great bit of business here <laughs> with Carl ripping out the, uh, the pages, which he's done with everybody's book, of course. Classic Carl Kolchak uh, recklessness. Uh, he's also, he also announced, I believe, early in the episode that he was going to get new clothes because if clothes make the reporter, uh, and Miss Emily goes, finally! But, of course, we never see those new clothes, nor will we ever see those new clothes. Nor do we want to see those new clothes, actually. That's, uh, that's the whole point. Um, oh, this is a, a, an entertaining bit coming up with uh, uh, the actor James Griffith playing Mr. George M. Schwartz. Um, uh, you, you got a whole kind of entertaining notion here with uh, uh, German accents, and uh, the trainer of the German Shepherd here is... Uh, <laughs> speaks to the dog or gives the dog's commands in German uh, and uh, it's kind of an entertaining little as this part is playing out let me just mention that uh, this was the eighth episode uh, telecast uh, of the Kolchak series and it was a significant episode for a couple of reasons but probably mainly uh, it was something of a um, kind of part of the second win that the series had if we go through the evolution of it, you know, you start off with The Ripper, which was a very exciting episode, which seemed to condense the two TV teachings into a single hour. I was very impressed that it was a very stylish uh, approach to the show. I said, okay, they're, they're capturing the soul of Kolchak in our form. How nice is that? So you start off very strong with The Ripper. Then you had Zombie, which was almost as good. Then you had UFO, or, or the, that other long title there, here, they're coming, there, whatever it is. And that, that, <laughs> that was a little vague. Um, it was interesting, it was a little offbeat, but we're going, oh, I don't know about that. That was followed by The Vampire, uh, which is an episode that I tend to flip-flop on. I mean, at first I liked it, then I didn't, now I kind of like it again. Probably a problem I had initially is that it is a direct sequel to the original Night Stalker movie. And by comparison, it's just nowhere as good, but it's kind of a pretty decent episode on its own terms. That was then followed by The Werewolf, which uh, is a pretty bad episode, mainly because The Werewolf itself is really lame-looking, uh, and the formula was really beginning, you know, to get to you after a while. I mean, how many stuntman monsters can you have throwing people around? Uh, week after that was Firefall, which is another vague episode, kind of an invisible monster. So we were kind of in a rut at that point. And... Uh, then Devil's Platform comes along, followed by Bad Medicine. We had one bad one, Energy Eater, after that, and then that's followed by Horror in the Heights. So Devil's Platform, Bad Medicine, and then Horror in the Heights really brought the show up to a new level and started to get us fans excited about it again. By the way, this is um, Alice Ghostly, who is playing Dr. Agnes Temple, and she's a, an actress, comedian, seen her in a million things, stage performer, she Tony. Um, she was frequently paired with Paul Lind in some way. She's kind of like a female Paul Lind. Uh, she played Esmeralda on Bewitched, and you know, serious roles include a small part in To Kill a Mockingbird. 
She passed away in 2007. Very convenient that uh, there's a statue of a Diablero that looks <laughs> very similar to uh, uh, Richard Keel. But uh, nevertheless, this enables uh, uh, information about a particular monster of the week to come across. And the monster is known as a Diablero. We should call it a monster. It's a, a uh, essentially a, a tribal medicine man and who is incredibly evil. As a matter of fact, uh, there is re there's been research done about this, and uh, in a book, 19, 1968, called The Teachings of Don Juan, a Yaqui way of knowledge, it refers to an Indian, uh, a Yaqui Indian, uh, Don Juan Matas, who was a student to a Diablero. And quoting from the book, at first I met Don Juan simply as a rather peculiar man who knew a great deal about peyote and who spoke Spanish remarkably well. But the people with whom he lived with believed that he had some sort of secret knowledge, that he was a bruja. The Spanish word bruja means in English medicine man, uh, witch sorcerer. Uh, it connotes essentially a person who has extraordinary and usually evil powers. Uh, and the Diablero, as presented here, uh, is in keeping with the classic legend because it's a sh uh, shapeshifter. And, uh, it's very much true to the original legend. And here we have yet another attack, uh, beautifully shot. Uh, it's actress Risa Royce who's playing this Charlotte Elaine Van Piet. Uh, and she was once married to uh, director Joseph von Sternberg, by the way. Again, look at this wonderful, wonderful photography. Uh, every, every shot in this series is really, really carefully designed, and that was kind of what drew the fans to it, along with Darren McGavin's wonderful performance, of course. Uh, getting back to the whole Diablero thing, though, uh, another, another quote here, the basic principle guiding the sorcerer is an attempt to reconcile the opposing animalistic and divine aspects of man. The sorcerer's solution to this constant struggle is to suppress man's divine nature, allowing the base instincts to rise above and totally rule over the individual and society in general. And whenever you're making a deal with the devil, whatever your culture is, you are in pretty, on pretty dangerous ground, let's put it that way. And the Diablero is a creature of pure evil. And uh, by the way, for the record, the Netflix premiered a Mexican TV series called Diablero in 2020. Uh, in that one, it's a young Diablero sorcerer named Elvis who teams up with uh, both a fallen priest and a female superhero. Uh, haven't seen that one yet. Um, anyway, our plot is moving along here, and Mr. Kolchak, being the good reporter that he is, keeps his eyes open, discovers some Indian feathers, uh, and uh, more more indication that uh, hmm, what you know, what exactly is the nature of this? creature that is terrorizing people, because he's now obviously beginning to get a sense, uh, you know, that, uh, my God, this guy jumps off buildings, what, you know, what the heck is he? The information about the Diablero kind of sets him on the right track, but he's going to need more information, which he is going to get. By the way, this is a very, very funny bit of business going back and forth. And again, look at the camera work, look at the editing, a very, very entertaining little bit. While it's going on, let's now talk about Jack Cole who directed the opening titles that we see every week of uh, Kolchak the Night Stalker. 
And here's what he had to say about Darren McGavin. He's a terrific actor, and he's got a great quality to him. That's what he had that Gary Collins didn't have. So I did the Sixth Sense opening without Collins, focusing on the great mystery of all the supernatural or paranormal events that they were exploring. Well, yeah, uh, Gary Collins, who was a very sort of handsome, straightforward leading man, uh, doesn't have a fraction of the kinetic excitement of a Darren McGavin playing Kolchak or a Peter Falk as Clem, any of these more very, very colorful performers. Um, so it made perfect sense that Jack Cole understood that with Darren McGavin, he had something. Okay, with, that, with Night Stalker, it was completely different. Um, a professor of psychology did an entire study that's online. He talks about fear without seeing fear. With Night Stalker, I started it lighthearted. He's coming into the newsroom, whistling and carefree, tosses the hat, it misses the hook. He doesn't care anyway because he's a slob and it falls into the garbage can. I didn't make another take out of it. Instinctively, I knew this is perfect. That's going to be his character. That's going to be his thing. So I kept it in. And then the music, when it finally was, was finally scored, it starts changing with the keys of the typewriter. I start moving in tighter and tighter, and the keys become this violent attack as the keys just went right to the lens of the camera. And you can finally see a little bit of what he's writing. The woman screamed as the creature attacked or whatever. And all of this, and suddenly he stops and he senses something. Light goes from daylight to nighttime. Everything freezes. The fan freezes. Everything stops. And all the fear is conveyed by these inanimate objects. Very, very impressive opening. Okay, here continues on. Frank Price was very impressed with that. Uh, he wanted me to direct an episode of Six Million Dollar Man, and I actually sat in on a, sat in on a story meeting, uh, but then the show was canceled, and you know, I wound up directing a few films after that, but not for Universal. Anyway, that's uh, Jack Cole uh, on the uh, opening of The Night Stalker. When the opening was eventually scored, uh, it was Gil Millay who was hired to, to provide the music for the series, and because uh, he had to come up with the theme pretty quickly, what he did is, and this has been, oh, there's that, that wrong stock shot again, uh, he, uh, he went back to um, a score he had written for the Quester tapes, and this is probably mentioned by a couple of other commentators, uh, and the secondary theme that he wrote for the Quester tapes, which you can hear, oh boy, just a few minutes into the movie, as a matter of fact, right after the main title ends, uh, the scene that follows will present that secondary theme. And it's kind of a technology theme. Uh, and later, about midway into the Quester tapes, uh, when the main character, Quester, is doing his robot-like thing, that theme kicks in full blast. And what's interesting is that the sound that sounds like typewriter keys when it was reworked for Kolchak the Night Stalker actually originally sounds like, you know, building a Tin Man. There was sort of, and the Tin Man analogy is even mentioned in, in Quester Tape. So it, it's, it's fascinating how certain ideas and sounds created for one thing can be reworked beautifully for something else. Uh, by the way, okay, David Lewis, we're looking at right here. He's the auctioneer. Uh, we've seen David Lewis in the, uh, many, many roles, the character actor. Uh, he's known, he can see him in the apartment. He has a great role in that. And then he was, you know, very popular in General Hospital. Uh, you also might remember him from the Batman TV series where, where he played uh, the, uh, uh, I guess it was Warden Crichton, who had very progressive 
ways of dealing with criminals, which didn't exactly work because the Penguin, the Joker, and the Catwoman, etc., just kept coming back to plague Batman. But nevertheless, <laughs> Batman had high praise for Warden Crichton's uh, innovative uh, approach to uh, reforming criminals. He's very funny in this scene, just really doing what's required. And of course, Kolchak's once again trying to lie his way into a story and, and gets caught. Uh, but you know, it, 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 it's great. No matter how many times Darren McGavin uh, does this kind of scene, he brings a separate little song and dance to it. And it never becomes boring. It never becomes, you know, you're vaguely aware that, you know, we, we've seen Kolchak trying to warn people of getting thrown out of places over and over. It happens several times even during the course of a single episode. And yet, uh, because of the way the show is filmed, because of the tone of the show, and Darren McGavin's commitment to everything, uh, you know, the ultimate result is, is an experience that is very satisfying. Uh, you know, somebody was telling me, you know, this is, Kolchak was no better than Voice at the Bottom of the Sea. You know, you had a stupid monster every week, and it looked so ridiculous. But no, 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 no. When you think about Voice at the Bottom of the Sea, the, the stiff upper lip uh, uh, kind of serious tone of it with a new monster it just became ludicrous, ludicrous and ridiculous, entertaining in a completely off-the-wall way. But Kolchak is aware of its own absurdity. And it plays with that. It, it knows the audience knows this. And basically it's winking at us and saying, this is all absurdity, but we're going to have fun with it. And uh, generally speaking, the episodes are a lot of fun. Uh, you know, uh, Kolchak was a show that began as a 10 o'clock show, and it eventually became an 8 o'clock show. It kind of danced around the network here and there. Uh, trying to figure out what the right audience for it would be uh, made sense to slot it as a 10 o'clock show given the violent murders and killings but of course kids love this kind of thing and at one point uh, during reruns it went to 8 p.m. and there were physical edits in those 8 p.m. telecasts I remember I think they were on Saturdays at 8 for some of the reruns and I had uh, I had reel-to-reel -reel taped uh, some of the episodes that said oh my god They've actually edited some of the more violent shots or moments or grisly moments uh, when the show was on at 8. I guess when you get away with it at 10, you couldn't get away with it at 8. Uh, okay, here we have a prelude to another attack sequence. And again, it's, uh, you know, what we're, what we're looking at, of course, are rich people uh, collecting treasures and gems and whatever. Uh, because they are rich and they can't afford the best. Um, the motive of this Native American Indian and why he's uh, killing these people and taking their jewels, or what would this giant monster of a man need with jewels? We, still, we really don't know what he needs them for. Again, really, really nice new way of doing this, having the, the, uh, the animal kind of fly in and viewing things from behind. You don't need a dissolve to the transformation, just this wonderful series of close-ups of the eyes, because we've seen the whole process, the MO, a few times now. Interesting moment here, because Kolchak is, is photographing uh, the killer, uh, because you would photograph any killer that you caught in a room like this. But unknown to Kolchak at this moment is that by taking a picture of him, uh, the light from his flash is having an effect on the Diablero's eyes, which are the center of his power. 
and uh, that's going to be really, really key. As a matter of fact, in this scene right here, Kolchak used the, the phrase expletives deleted, which of course became famous during the Watergate era uh, when they were reviewing the Nixon tapes. So uh, this show, which was in 1974, was still pretty much right at, you know, reacting to that whole experience of what the nation had just been through. What's happening here, of course, is something that happens in every Kolchak episode, whereas our intrepid reporter is desperately uh, uh, trying to explain to uh, the authorities what has gone on. And of course, they, even though they kind of half believe him because they've been experiencing with him, what usually happens is that the insanity and the absurdity of what Kolchak has uncovered finally just makes them say, but this is ridiculous, we can't quite buy that. But, again, and again, that whole, aha, aha, which is a running gag in the Kolchak series. It's a typical Darren McGavin response, and very often characters will respond back to him, pretty much saying, don't give me aha, <laughs> which is what's happening here. But more important, what's happening here is that Kolchak is being confronted with the fact that, hey, why would this big Indian be stealing stuff? What is his motive? It doesn't really make sense, even on the terms that you're giving me. And Kolchak kind of has to sit back and go, hmm, he's kind of got a point. You know, why is this big Indian going around uh, stealing jewel? What could he possibly want? Uh, now, he's already been given some hints as to what that might be. Earlier on, he learned that, listen, maybe the guy's just a crazy collector. Uh, isn't looking to resell the stuff and make a fortune, just kind of wants to look at it. Uh, but of course, there's, there's more to it than that, and uh, we are eventually going to be learning exactly what the Diableros' uh, motive is, and uh, that will help considerably, uh, you know, aiding Kolchak in understanding what's really going on here. And again, you know, Gavin's in great shape, just jumps right into that car, takes off, in spite of the fact that it's November and freezing, supposedly. Uh, what we have here is uh, a new character. Alice Ghostly was so intrigued by uh, Carl Kolchak's interest in the Diablero that she, you know, dug out an expert. This is Charles Rowling Thunder, played by the great Victor Jory. And he really is a legendary uh, character actor. He's in over 200 films during his 50-year acting career. Uh, he's probably most famous uh, as the evil overseer in Gone with the Wind, uh, but he is amazing as Oberon in the Midsummer's Night's Dream, if you've ever seen it. Uh, and he's also played Indians on screen, probably most famously, Injun Joe in The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Wonderful uh, Technicolor Zanuck movie. Uh, it could also be remembered as the, the father in The Miracle Worker. He's very good in that. And uh, perhaps most perversely, as a romantic leading man in Catwoman of the Moon. <laughs> That's quite a sight, really. Uh, he died in uh, age 79 in 1982. And he actually played a, a character very similar to this in Devil Dog, The Hound from Hell, which is a you know, made-for-TV horror movie done a few years later. Uh, he is telling Carl Kolchak now, the eyes are everything with the Diablero. And uh, Carl is saying, well, I know, uh, you know, uh, when I flash my thing, it can, you know, smarts, but is it, is it, he said, no, 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 it's deadly to him. And Carl's beginning to grasp that. Finally, it, um, 
it is the Victor Jari character here who reveals specifics about why the Diablero is stealing all of this jewelry. Well, um, apparently, uh, uh, he's under a curse. Uh, he lived for years under a curse, uh, according to, uh, to what uh, Charles Rowling Thunder is saying. And uh, it was a curse to acquire a treasure. He was an ancient sorcerer who dared to steal the ritual treasure which belongs to the gods alone. And for his greed, he was put under a curse, a curse to build an eternal treasure before he could cross the river of the seven winds. This is exactly now what, uh, what Charles Rowling Thunder is telling Carl Kolchak. And so that's why he's killing all these people and stealing all this jewelry. He's acquiring the ultimate treasure, and not even for his own pleasure. He's under a curse. He has to do this because he was greedy and did nothing but acquire treasures years ago. This is what he must do. So interestingly enough, there is no uh, racial, social, political agenda here. Uh, the Diablero was just doing his thing. And let's talk a second about the monsters of Kolchak. You know, we're just looking at Victor Jory, and it's interesting. Some people have felt, uh, uh, gee, maybe Victor Jory uh, would have been better as playing the Diablero. He could have been crafty and a far more interesting adversary for Kolchak than just this towering Indian guy, right? Well, I kind of disagree with that, because if you think about it for a second, uh, the monsters of Kolchak are basically straight men for Kolchak. Uh, and that started with uh, Barry At Atwater in the original Night Stalker. It, it certainly carried over into the Night Strangler of Richard Anderson. And most of the monsters on, on the TV version are also uh, very much Eric Braden is of that, that nature. They are men of few words. They, uh, they want to mind their own business. Unfortunately, that business means, usually means killing other people, which does kind of make their activities high profile. Um, but they're grim and, like I say, straight men, because up against Karl Kolchak, Karl Kolchak is the three-ring circus performer of a character. And like any great duos, uh, you have to have one wild guy and one straight man, right? Well, that was the formula that was kind of set up, and it varies a little. As the series went along, you started getting uh, some of the monsters or the evil characters who are a little more out there. I'm thinking of Lara Parker going crazy in her episode where she played a witch. Uh, which is typical of Lara Parker, uh, but uh, generally speaking, they were stoic, the, uh, the bad guy monsters. And, uh, you know, uh, I would say the Diablero, um, as played by Richard Keel, is exactly in that style. Now, now, he's far more imposing and frightening uh, looking, but he does fit into that category. Uh, and also, I, I, I should mention here, you know, uh, that this whole little setup with the high-rise, uh, actually, the high-rise thing was set up in one of the first scenes where Ron mentions it, and that's what we're de dealing with here. Interesting that Vincenzo also seems to live at the office. Uh, the, like I say, the, the long-suffering father figure, uh, there he is waiting for the prodigal son to come home, the problem child, and that whole family set up there went a long way in, in making the show ingratiating. It's uh, particularly, it's going to be particularly interesting when we get to Horror in the Heights, where 
sort of off to the side, we begin to look at the way these characters view each other, the regular characters. We, we really can never have that fully explored, because it would tend to end the series if Carl and, and Tony Vincenzo's uh, personalities and everything really kind of reached a point where they came to really connect. There always has to be a certain disconnect, but we always do feel it's, it's father-son and that there is genuine feeling between them. This is an interesting bit of business because when I first saw this episode, I, I, you know, as much as you're, you know, the scary stuff is great and all that, I couldn't help thinking, oh my God, poor Carl uh, has to walk up all these stairs. And uh, it's so wonderful how the composer and the cinematographer and everyone just <laughs> joins forces so that we can feel, uh, wow, poor Carl. I mean, he's doing all of this to save the world and he gets no credit for it. Uh, but you know, as Vincenzo says in the very first TV movie, you're a damn good reporter. And that is what he is. He, he is, that is maybe only, the only thing he is. And as a damn good reporter, he's going to get to the truth no matter what. I shouldn't say that's all that he is because he's a savior of mankind in, in addition to being a damn good reporter. And I suppose if you want to romanticize uh, journalism, one could say that the whole nature of getting to the truth of things is saving the world on a certain level, uh, on a figurative level. Of course, our poor friend Carl Kolchak has to do this uh, every week, and uh, it takes its toll. I mean, wow. Anyway, let's finally, uh, let's talk about the late Richard Keel, who plays our monster of the week. The man stood seven foot, two inches. Uh, of course, he's best known for playing Jaws uh, in those two 007 movies. And he was also very good playing Mr. Larson in Happy Gilmore years later, where he got to do uh, recite a little more dialogue. Speaking of dialogue, it's really quite wonderful. I'll, I'll break away uh, from Mr. Kyle for a second here just to talk about what, what, what's happening here. We're going to be hearing the... Uh, the voice of the Diablero as he is chanting, and it's really well handled. First, you kind of hear it in a synthesized form, and then as Carl is getting closer and closer, the voice becomes clearer. But anyway, getting back to, to Richard Keel, um, had a long history of playing giants, monsters, and Native Americans on film and TV, uh, which certainly set the stage for his performance as the Diablero. Uh, he played the menacing Master Sticks in Thriller's Well of Doom and the alien Caminet in Twilight Zone's To Serve Man. Although, of course, in To Serve Man, uh, his voice was dubbed by Joseph Luskin. In Well of Doom, he was able to use his own voice. There's only a few lines in To Serve Man. Uh, Joseph Luskin was required to sort of do a little more heavy lifting in that department. Uh, and he portrayed the Incredible Hulk, uh, but was replaced by Lou Ferrigno after shooting started because... He didn't have the necessary bulk. Uh, and uh, nevertheless, he got paid for the two-hour two pilots that he agreed to do, so he was happy, and, and the contact lenses drove him crazy. Uh, and when his autobiography, Making It Big in the Movies, he doesn't even mention his work on The Night Stalker. He's not a horror movie fan. As he says, it's not his soft spot. Uh, but I caught up with him at a Hollywood show uh, about 10 years ago. I bought a still and uh, asked him some rather pertinent question, questions. And here are his answers. I always tried to play parts that were sympathetic. But that character, the Diablero, was pure evil. 
He had no redeeming qualities. All I could do was show hate and then fear at the end. I remember the producer liked me so much they hired me for a second episode. That was even worse. They put me in the shaggy costume, and you couldn't tell who the person was inside. They just needed a big guy. Well, he's actually absolutely correct. Uh, he plays the Diablero as a figure of terror. I mean, the part is written as pure evil, and he does a great job projecting that. Uh, his facial features can be sort of frightening. He knows how to play that up. And here we see him chanting. Uh, uh, we see what he's doing with all the treasures and how that connects to his curse. Uh, uh, he is fulfilling what he has to do because of his curse. There's a certain level of elation in that he's accomplishing his goal, which, of course, Kolchak is going to mess up the whole thing. By the way, another bit of made-up lore, which is coming in very handy at this point, uh, is the fact that if a Diablero sees his reflection, that's the only thing that can kill him. Well, uh, I don't think that really comes out of the actual lore, uh, but it makes logical sense given how important the eyes are to the Diablero, and uh, it's perfectly fine as a device uh, to use that. It's a Medusa kind of gimmick, and so essentially Carl has to find a way uh, to get him to see his reflection, and that's sort of the gimmick here. Interesting, the whole transforming into a bird, transforming into a coyote, uh, in the episode just before this, The Devil's Platform, we had an evil politician who turns into a dog, uh, a hound from hell. And uh, a week later, we have a coyote from hell, which is kind of, you know, all right. Thank goodness. Both episodes are very, very uh, well done in their own way, and uh, you really don't get a sense of duplication. You feel like you're seeing something They're very well handled here, the destruction of the Diablero, as uh, Richard Kill said, he is able to show the fear, not just the evil at this point, but the terror of knowing that his days have finally come to an end. And we even get a little optical and a nifty kind of uh, disintegration moment, uh, which is pretty gooky and uh, fairly impressive. Like many of these shots uh, uh, in The Night Stalker, the cinematographer kind of softens the focus so it can look a little more interesting, and that's the case here. Nice that we have that uh, disintegration, though. Uh, good disintegration is always uh, a good thing here. And we won't get that in uh, Horror in the Heights. Uh, there's a little spoiler up ahead, uh, and some fans have complained about that. But, uh, but essentially, uh, it's, it's always welcome. Well, Carl is pretty much... Uh, uh, summing things up at this point, and, uh, you know, I would say, while not uh, among the absolute top episodes of Kolchak the North Star, it's just kind of below that, and as I mentioned earlier, it was very, very satisfying, especially after the Devil's Platform the week before, uh, to have an episode that uh, seemed fresh, original, it got away from the stuntman monster thing. I mean, even though you had, you know, uh, Richard Keel, he doesn't throw people around, really. Uh, he turns into animals. Very different. Very, very different. So, uh, I'd like to thank you for, uh, for listening. And uh, I just want to say that I'll also be uh, here to take you through two additional episodes, Horror in the Heights and The Sentry. And on behalf of everyone at Kino, once again, thanks for listening.